Welcome to Bio, a podcast produced by the Biographers International Organization. Bio is devoted to promoting the work of biographers and advocating for biography as a genre with the support of biographers and biography lovers worldwide. I'm Bio member Sonia Williams in Washington, D.C. On each episode, we'll talk with biographers about their work. This time, we interview award-winning journalist and author Caleb Gale. His latest book, We Refuse to Forget, A True Story of Black Creeks, American Identity, and Power, was published by Riverhead Books in June 2023. Gale's book explores the lives of Black members of the indigenous Creek Nation based in Oklahoma. So I asked Caleb Gale why he chose to write this group biography. I would say it's uh, it was a bit of a haunting, if you will. My family is Jamaican, and we moved from New York to Oklahoma when I was pretty young. How old were you? Seven or eight. Huh. And so I had already, especially growing up in like the Jamaican church environment in the Bronx and in Brooklyn, I had a very fixed view of who black people could be and where black people came from. So when we moved to Oklahoma, I instantly started interacting with kids that looked like me. And many of these kids, I thought, were spreading wives' tales. They were saying, I got Indian in me. And it felt to me to be something, you know, some sort of myth. I wouldn't call it necessarily a lie. And uh, I kind of dismissed them a bit too early. And then fast forward a couple of decades, I was working at The Guardian and was looking at my hometown newspaper's website, Tulsa World, and saw that Black people were suing the Creek Nation over citizenship. And those children who were once saying, I got Indian in me, sounded quite a bit more informed about the landscape of American history than I did. Um, they presented a much more multitudinous way of being Black in America and even in this world. And I love um, the phrase that shows up several times in your book, that someone could be fully Black and fully Creek. Mm-hmm. So if you can give a, a brief background of what the Creek Nation was all about. Sure. So I think it's really critical. I think the fact that you call it a nation is like an incredibly important in probably disrupting the way in which people normally kind of consider various indigenous nations, peoples, and tribes, which I mean to say is that it is distinctly a nation, right? It is a federation of many tribes, many peoples, many kinship bonds that date back in this country long before any sort of colonial force came here. Mm -hmm. And a lot of them were situated in the southeastern United States. You could find them in the far reaches of the Carolinas, down to various coasts along Florida, down through different portions of Georgia and even parts of the Alabama and Mississippi coasts. But yes, they are a federated nation that was intended to operate autonomously. But in the United States, we whittled that down to becoming a race. And because that a race can be categorized, a racial group can be subjugated, a racial group can be subjected to a variety of different harms and dangers mm -hmm. that a nation just cannot. And so that was the enduring project of how to deal with what we in the United States called the Indian problem. Mm. And also, if you're talking about a nation of people mm -hmm. who lived in various portions of the country in the Southeast, yeah. how does that 
conglomerate of folk moved from the southeast to Oklahoma. Yeah. For the most part. Yeah, often by force and threat, right? So Andrew Jackson, the guy who sits on our $20 bills, definitely didn't have the best of intentions towards people, but that his, you know, his efforts with the Indian Removal Act of uh, the 1800s was oftentimes predated by many presidents who would appoint Indian agents, as they were called, to try and civilize and to try and reapportion and introduce privatization to people who shared things communally, Mm -hmm. to try and divide and subjugate people along various lines of invented difference. And so often the project of moving people west predated Andrew Jackson. In fact, Andrew Jackson was just another very devastating, very painful step along a long journey of figuring out how to subdue and subject those who were here first to even harsher and harsher punishment. He was just another example of it. So the effort to do in people who were indigenous and those indigenous nations to which they belonged predated Andrew Jackson, but he definitely put the fine point on it. Mm. So how did you decide to get into telling the story of Black Creeks using the lineage and the association with a a man named Cal Town? And what was his significance in your approach to telling this story? Sure, yeah. So aside from meeting some of his direct descendants, when you started looking at some of the archives, which, you know, sadly for people of color, sadly for indigenous peoples, like they don't exist all in one place, labeled neatly, digitized and ready for you. But I was in the National Archives and was looking at some of the affidavits filed after the Battle of Honey Springs, this random civil war battle that was fought um, in eastern Oklahoma, mm-hmm. which was that time wasn't even called Oklahoma, it was called Indian Territory. And there was a man who was known to have jet black skin talking about how he, a landowner in that area, was forced to escape to a place called Fort Gibson. Fort Gibson was in Oklahoma? Or yeah, yeah. Towards what is even now? What is now Oklahoma, even just further east of where Cal Tom was. And then I saw him again in the records of a guy named Ethan Allen Hitchcock, who clearly had a very astute lineage of Ethan Allen, right, one of the founding fathers of this country, Mm. who went down to what is now known as Oklahoma, but then again called Indian Territory back then, and interacted with someone named Kat Yargi. And he saw that Kat Yargi had a black person that he called his Negro Tom, to kind of delineate that this man was Kat Yargi's property. And when I met Cow Tom's descendants in this present era, right, and I used terms like freedmen, which would denote that he was formerly enslaved and then set free. Yeah. Or when I used terms like enslaved or slave, the pushback that I got was uh, righteous indignation um, <laughs> because I had mislabeled just like so many other white people at that time had mislabeled so many other black people, so many other people of color, because they ascribed a station in life to a person's skin tone. So Cow Tom to me was just odd because this guy was a chief of the nation. He was dispatched by the nation after the Civil War to try to negotiate the rewriting of their peace treaty in 1866. And in that peace treaty of 1866, it included two clauses that not only ensured the emancipation of all black people who were held as slaves by the Creek Nation, 
But even more than that, it established that any black person who was held and became a citizen of the Creek Nation was entitled to all the rights and privileges. And that, in many cases, meant land. And for Cal Tom, that meant an access to opportunity that black people in almost all parts of the United States did not have, and a certain purchase in wealth and opportunity and economic success and viability that, quite frankly, most black people didn't have at that time. And he sat on land that was quite prosperous. So first names, because obviously names are important. Sure. Did he call himself Cal Tom? That's how he was. So oftentimes he was known as Cal Miko Tom, which was to denote that he was a chief. He was someone of importance who had rule and reign over a group of people or a township, um, so on and so forth. But yeah, he did go by that. Hmm. And then you talk about trying to find him in the archives or seeing him in the National Archives. Yeah. What other sources did you use to really establish his lineage and his importance? Yeah. So interestingly, like the archives of like the Department of Interior that had like some of the negotiating materials, Hmm. oftentimes the materials of people like James Harlan, who was the Secretary of Interior, who was really one of the architects behind why a lot of indigenous nations were forced to give up a lot of their land, but also was the reason in many cases why they were forced to also emancipate some of their slaves. Dennis Cooley, who was kind of the convener in chief, one of these men dispatched from the U.S. government to convene people. Oral history was incredibly important. It was kind of this archipelago, right, of resources that one had to use And then also like people like Ethan Allen Hitchcock, who probably didn't give uh, if this was a a podcast that was more colorful, I'd say, you know, he didn't give much of a rat's you know what, but he didn't really care. I don't think about Cal Tom. He was a throwaway term. And I think it was the omission of the importance of him, but then his capturing of his dream that he wanted a gristmill and that he wanted to, to build a school for his children that was almost written in this jocular, almost mocking tone that this black guy wants to do these things here that gave so much more insight, not just into who Cao Tom was, but the society in which he was living and how the world viewed, I think also the Creek Nation, right? How curious it was that this group of people who had been exiled from their own land had created this much more multiracial way of being in a way that the United States seems to still be struggling to do today. Mm. You talk about following the breadcrumbs, the archival breadcrumbs. (laughs) Did Kyle Tom, did Mm -hmm. he write? No. So, okay, so you also talked about oral histories. Are there tapes of the oral histories? Yeah, no, there aren't many tapes. I mean, a lot of times it's passed down from family member to family member. A lot of times also where they came from, this is another really interesting source, where actually not just the WPA slave narratives, but the Indian Papers Pioneer Collection. So Cow Tom's essentially uh, grandson-in-law, if you will, was a guy named Jake Simmons Sr., who married a woman named Rose. And that was Cow Tom's direct descendant. And so you end up realizing when reading about how he put himself on the record in front of... Uh, I guess that guy's name was L.W. Wilson, this writer who was sent by the federal government to collect the narratives of people who were deemed as, in their words, Indian versus those who were deemed to go and collect the stories of slaves. And you can actually see the familial related connections between those who found themselves on the Indian Papers Pioneers collection Mm -hmm. versus those on the WPA slave narratives, where, again, 
based upon the distinctions that white people found at that time, they would decide who was who, mm-hmm. right? Jake Simmons Jr. even talked, bragged even in something called The Southern Workman, one of Booker T. Washington's magazines, just how amazing it was to be black and Creek and living in what was then Indian territory. Um, and there aren't many years of distance between Cow Tom's death and Jake Simmons Sr. kind of living you know, in this 10-bedroom house, as he talked about, that did thousands of dollars in commerce every single week. So this this sort of braggadocio that you're able to find had its source in the sort of life that Cowtown was able to craft for his family. Mm-hmm. And so we're talking about both the slave narratives and the Indian narratives. Mm-hmm. Are they in the Library of Congress? Yeah, so I actually found those thanks to the fine folks of the Western History Collection at the University of Oklahoma, but then also the slave narratives were fairly easily accessible as well. I spent a lot of time, of course, in Oklahoma where much of the story takes place, but a lot of those are in a variety of places you can actually access. Yes, some of them are in the Library of Congress. They were like so very neatly bound and kept and mailed to me by the fine folks in the, the Western History History collection. Shout out to them and the folks, the Oklahoma History Historical Society, who were just just so ready and willing to be of service. (laughs) (laughs) That's great. Yeah. (laughs) So you write about what was America then, and then the Indian Territory and the nations, the Mm -hmm. the so-called civilized. They uh, called them the five civilized tribes. Okay, so who were those tribes, and why did they call them the civilized tribes? Sure. Yeah. So those were the Cherokee Creek. Choctaw, Chickasaw, and Seminole. And they were designated the five civilized tribes for a variety of reasons, but those were the ones in which they tried to introduce much more formally to certain practices of civilization. And for the purposes of those who are going to be listening to this, like I'm going to short circuit a lot of history and just say that it was an effort to try and see if they can bring them as close or as adjacent to whiteness and in the minds of colonizers at that time, as close to being American as possible. So becoming American meant shedding all that made them indigenous, even though, again, they were here on this land first, right? So that was kind of the purpose and the mission there, and that's why they got such a unfortunate designation and why oftentimes we say the so-called five civilized tribes. But those also were the ones who had some of the largest land allocations in what became known as Indian Territory when they were removed from primarily, again, the southeastern United States and relocated to Indian Territory. And you also write about the treaties that the American government entered into with some of these tribes or nations. Yeah, all of them. And that they were broken Every again single time. and again and again. Every single time. So how do you document that and then organize it and then make it so readable in your book? Sure, yeah. There are well over 500 trees that have been broken by the United 500? States. 500? Well over. It's, 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 it's really hard. But I would say that, sadly, the way in which colonizers, in the most fundamental sense, do what they do. We think we think of colonizers usually as coming into a place and saying, "Here's violence, here's pillaging, here's all of these dangerous things that we're going to implement," and that is very much the story of colonization, for sure. However, there's a step before that, which is we are declaring that this is ours, and then we're going to go do those things, right? And whatever the tool is that's most effective, whether it's the introduction, forced introduction of privatization, whether it's enslavement, whether it's violence, whatever, that's the tool that they're going to use. So to your question, 
the fundamental thing that uh, happens every single time another reason for convening said groups together and saying we're going to do another treaty is that oftentimes they would very clearly state, okay, so like everything we talked about before is gone, so now we need a new treaty. So it made it easier, sadly, the unrestrained kind of audacity, right? The audacity fueled by white supremacy and colonialism enabled them to document the dirtiness that they did. It's not hard, admittedly, to keep track of that, right? Like even the Peace Treaty of 1866, when, uh, you know, Cao Tom is called to renegotiate terms, you know, of course, emancipated black people, like it essentially was done because the United States found that, oh, well, some of the members of the Creek Nation had participated in the Civil War with the Confederacy. So now everything and i mean everything that you've previous we've previously agreed to right we're done we're back at the negotiating table but isn't it true that certain members of the creek nation also joined with the union army oh yeah exactly yeah and that was that was it for the united states government it was like that's nice but we're back at the negotiating table and whatever we agreed to before you can ignore that we're we're starting de novo Right. It's the ugly convenience that they entitled themselves to mm. because they could. Mm. So let me get you to talk a little bit about the writing process. Yeah. How did you decide to place yourself in the book as you're telling the story of mm. Kyle Tom mm. and his lineage? Yeah, begrudgingly. No, uh, <laughs> I think if I was writing a book, let's just take a fictitious example. Let's say I was writing a book about the 1998 Michael Jordan announcement that he's going to retire, right? For most of the global population, I do not have to explain who Michael Jordan is, that he's retiring, that he had a significant impact on the world, <laughs> right. that he was even in Chicago, or like, none of these sorts of things uh, matter. They almost come preloaded by virtue of existing in the world, mm-hmm. right? When it came to telling people that there were black people somewhere who were slaves. And by the way, slavery was considered very differently. And the Creek Nation, which was a full nation, didn't necessarily want slavery. So the versions of slavery were more numerous. Like the amount of steps that I'd have to oftentimes get through would be tougher for a reader. And because I published on a trade press where we wanted to have any old person read our book, my story and admittedly admitting my ignorance, which is pretty much what I end up doing in the book, is just admitting my ignorance over and over and over again, provided an accessible pathway for someone who has probably never heard any of this, someone who's never been to Oklahoma, someone who doesn't know the origins of Oklahoma, someone who doesn't understand the history of the Twin Territories, someone who doesn't understand the Trail of Tears, India Removal Act, someone who's never heard of Cow Tower, Benjamin Hawkins that they can then see me learn in real time. And to do so by adding grace to the fact that I didn't know, but also indicting our country for doing what it did, but giving us the opportunity to recover that which we forgot. So I think that's part of the reason we decided, my editor and I, to insert myself because I almost served as a Virgil who was willfully ignorant and became less ignorant over time. Mm-hmm. That makes sense. And because you're not Black Creek, mm-hmm. did you encounter any resistance from 
people who you interviewed in the Creek Nation. Of course. I mean, I, I mean, like, I think it's funny. I think I could have been a citizen and still gotten pushback. I think, like, the, the reality is, is and I think because my, of my orientation as a journalist, you never take for granted that someone has talked to you. In fact, you're always shocked when someone does. And that's the baseline assumption. Like that's that's not a moment to be down. That's a moment to then figure out how can I get them to talk to me? How can I write around them such that they feel compelled to want to talk to me and add their voice to the record? I think also for a lot of folks, there was reticence because their story had never really been told in the way that they ever, not as if it even wanted, but just told in any sort of real way. And I think what oftentimes I could do, I told them, I, I can't assure you that it will A, enter this book, B, that it'll come out the way you want, but I'm here to give you the opportunity to inform my thinking and my rationalization and my processing and synthesis. And that oftentimes led to people talking to me more often than not. But that's, I mean, again, it's my orientation as a journalist. People are not, I'm always shocked when someone goes on the record with me. It's like, oh, really? You you want to talk to me? Like, this is on the, the recorder is going right now. You want to talk to me? So I'm always shocked when someone does talk to me. So specifically about Kyle Tom's relatives, mm-hmm. the Simmons family mm-hmm. and... Uh, Johnny May Austin. Johnny May Austin. Mm-hmm. So is Johnny May Austin part of the lineage? Of- she is. Yeah, she's then since passed. I mean, she passed in the, during the process of even writing the book, so she uh-huh. never got to even see the book. Wow. But yeah, I mean, I remember I think I recounted in the book that like stepping inside of her house was an education in that I never would have received otherwise. It was a museum, and even talking to her grandson Demario. I don't even know in their effort to get their citizenship back. I don't think that they're trying to get any sort of financial compensation. I, like I would always ask and they just didn't know, right? They couldn't calculate or they wouldn't, they just hadn't thought about it for them. It's, can we rescue the history before the history dies? Mm. And as Black Creeks, how did they lose their citizenship? Sure. Yeah. So in 1979, I mean, there's the longest tale starts in like 1887 with something called the Dawes Commission. But essentially, in 1979, uh, then chief of the Muscogee Creek Nation, a guy named Chief Clark Cox, with the help, of course, of his you know council, changes their constitution and goes to determining citizenship by using what's kind of considered the by blood rolls or the full blood rolls. So if for as many black people started in 1887 with the passage of the the Dawes Act and then through the early 1900s, they would send kind of surveyors to determine whether or not someone was Creek. They would, of course, use all of these pseudoscientific methods by which to do so. Mm -hmm. And if oftentimes, like many, if you appear to be too black, right, if you had too many drops of black blood in your system, they would oftentimes put you on the freedman role. Even if your ancestors had never been enslaved, mm. right? Even if you had been fully adopted in, maybe you married in or what have you, you were put on, in many cases, the freedman role, mm-hmm. right? And that didn't matter much to the Creek Nation because that was pseudoscience. It was pseudoscientific. It made no sense. But fast forward to the 1970s, specifically in 1979, that became a distinction that did have a difference. And as such, 
if you were on the Freedman Roll after 1979, you were not considered a citizen of the Creek Nation. Wow. How long did it take you to write this? And do you have any recommendations for anyone else who might be interested in pursuing a group biography like mm. this? Yeah, drink some Ovaltine. No, I'm kidding. Um, <laughs> no, uh, it took about four plus years end to end. In terms of like people to read I, I or things of recommendations, I think you, you get better at writing by reading, right? And so for me, I really just committed myself to an endless absorption of material, right? Um, especially on this topic, people like Ty Miles and Elena Roberts and Kendra Field, but then also a host of others who were endeavoring to kind of approach nonfiction in a different way, especially when the archive does not lend itself to what we would normally consider wholeness. People like Saidiya Hartman who might actually contemplate what omission might mean, what what the missing elements, what the absence lends itself to understand that wholeness as it's um, usually considered with massive air quotes might not. So I think it's one thing to do group biography when you have everything you need. It's a different thing when you're doing group biography over a long period of time when you don't. And I think embracing that lack oftentimes can tell a whole lot more. It it ends up making it such that your biography is not an encyclopedic entry, right? It, it makes it such that you're not busy recounting strictly facts, but rather getting after meaning and implication, which oftentimes can help people glom onto a story a whole lot more than the recounting strictly of facts. So I think that's kind of my recommendation to folks is kind of submit themselves to shore a lot of Gatorade and Ovaltine, but most importantly, <laughs> to commit themselves to, to reading an enormous amount of people that they admire who've done it and done it successfully. And how easy or, or difficult was it to find a publisher for this kind of thing? Uh, yeah, yeah. Ooh. Um, you know, I think it was actually harder to get an agent for this work. I got this stuff pre, you know, publishing, being forced to reckon with how poorly they were doing with people of color during the wake of George Floyd. And so I think what what happens, especially for authors, is that we get so enmeshed in the content that we realize that this is a sales game, sadly, right? Mm -hmm. And you put together proposals that are sales documents. You're not putting together the proposal for the book you're going to write. Those sometimes are two very different kinds of documents. And it's sad given that you know, I have an MBA, I've worked in finance and consulting, and you would think that's where my mind would go. But when I came to the literary and the reporting and the journalistic process, for whatever reason, I left that all behind. But mm -hmm. I think remembering very much so and kind of gearing yourself up for the fact that this is a sales process. And then when you come to write the book is where you then take greater ownership of the content the beauty of the sentences, the rendering of these mm -hmm. stories, that's where you can also refine that joy. So for me, I think it was the difficulty was remembering that this is a sales process. And sales processes are ugly, they're very transactional, and you know they are what they are. And so that was hard, but then on the other side of it, seeing the success that the book has had has made that darker time in life a whole lot more brighter in the rear view. Well, congratulations. Well, I appreciate you for making the time for me and inviting me to this. That was journalist and author Caleb Gale speaking with me about his latest book, We Refuse to Forget.
A True Story of Black Creeks, American Identity, and Power. It was published by Riverhead Books in June of this year. This interview was recorded on May 20th during BIO's annual conference at the Leon Levy Center for Biography in the City University of New York. To learn more about BIO or to hear other episodes in our podcast series, please visit our website, biographersinternational.org. I'm BIO member Sonia Williams in Washington, D.C., Alani Hodge created our theme music. And until next time, thanks so much for listening and have a wonderful day.